right, so we're going to spend, check this out, we're going to spend the next nine weeks together diving into what we're calling Summer on the Mount. We get the idea of Summer on the Mount from one of the very first sermons that Jesus ever preached. Uh, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. So in his first teachings, he got a group of people together. I'll show you those verses here in just a moment. And he just began to teach and to share. It got me thinking about my first sermon, the first time I ever preached. Um, don't let this gray hair and the beard fool you. I'm still a young guy. Come on, somebody. I can get down with the youths. Come on now. But I remember over 20 years ago, I preached my very first sermon as a 19-year-old kid, almost 20-year-old kid. And I preached it at the Dover Pentecostal Holiness Church. Y'all don't know. Come on now. The Pentecostal Holiness people, they don't play. Um, this is an actual picture of the church. I did a Google image of it earlier in the week. And the pastor at that time was a man by the name of Pastor Jeter. Uh, he's gone on to be with the Lord since then. Uh, my family had some involvement in this church when I was a kid. And so he invited me to preach my first sermon ever. And uh, I think it lasted about eight minutes. Come on now. Like... And I got up there, and if my memory serves me right, I preached on, you know, the, the walls of Jericho and how they marched around those walls seven times, and the walls came down. And I remember at 19 years old, I had these uh, cinder blocks, these cement blocks stacked up, and I was like, if you just march around your wall, they'll come down. I started kicking down blocks. Come on. And I've just been kicking walls down ever since, you know, 20 years ago. Now, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, and I don't know if you know this or not, it lasted for approximately three days in length. And I told Kimberly, I said, did, did you know that Jesus' first sermon was three days long? She was like, yeah, I do. I know, I know more of the Bible than you. And I was like, well, that's true. And, and I told her, I said, you know, what's interesting is, is that whenever I speak, whenever I preach, like after about four or five minutes, I feel like I lose people. You know, how did Jesus keep the attention of people for three days? And I can't keep the people's attention for three minutes. And without hesitation, she goes, that's easy. You ain't Jesus. Come on now. So that's true. But he, he preached for, for three days, and we know that according to the Gospel of Matthew, that his entire sermon, or at least the outline, we don't get all of the details, the highlights, but at least the outline of his sermon are found in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. And here's how we know that. If you go to Matthew chapter 5, you look at the first two verses, it says this. It says that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, what did he do? He went up, and he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him and watched this, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach. So in Matthew chapter 5, the very first verse shows us that this sermon is about to begin. And then if you go to Matthew chapter 8, verse number 1, you'll see that when Jesus came down the mountain. So between Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and the ending of Matthew chapter 7, uh, we see this three-day-long sermon. And over the next nine weeks, we're going to cover a lot of the topics that Jesus addressed. I don't think we'll get to all of them. But let me give you just a, a little bit of an outline here of some of the topics that Jesus spoke while he was on this mountain. Interestingly enough about the sovereignty of God and the intelligence of God is that Jesus would position himself on a mountain. See, thousands of years ago, there wasn't a PA system, a microphone. There wasn't technology to amplify a voice like this microphone is amplifying mine. So Jesus strategically placed himself on the mountain so that his voice could be heard to the crowds of people, the multitudes of people that would come to listen. And while he was preaching in this first ever sermon, he talked about issues of anger and issues of lust. He talked about divorce and uh, conquering anxiety. 
He talked about real faith and genuine salvation. He talked about the need to care for widows and how we should love our enemies and how we should treat people. Can I get an amen from anybody? Come on. How we should give to those in need. And he even talked about the disciplines of prayer and fasting, which by the way, we're six weeks away from our 21 days of prayer and fasting that we do every January and then every August. And so I thought I'd give you a little plug there. Jesus talked about the importance of prayer and fasting. And as Jesus steps up on this mountain, the crowds come, he just begins to teach. And this is probably a little criticism at my approach to teaching, but again, I ain't Jesus, come on. But Jesus didn't use a bumper video. Uh, Jesus didn't use some illustration. Jesus didn't tell a funny, you know, opening joke or, you know, do some like magic tricks to catch the attention of the listeners. He jumped right into what we know are the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are from the Latin word beati. And if you say it like with a little, you know, uh, Italian flair, beati, forget about it, right? Actually, I don't want you to forget about it. And this idea of beati is synonymous with being rich or being wealthy or being happy. But there is a heavy emphasis on beati as the blessing, the blessings of God passed down through the blessing of Jesus. So think about this, and then I'll read you the first sermon, part of the first sermon that Jesus ever taught. But as soon as Jesus begins to speak in his very first sermon, watch this, he teaches that a God-centered life, that a Christ-centered life is a blessed life. That's what he teaches. And who wouldn't want to hear this message about not just blessings on earth, but eternal blessings, earthly blessings and eternal blessings. I mean, if you think about it, what's the opposite of being blessed? It's being cursed. And so Jesus, in his first sermon, he is teaching to the people this understanding for them that if they will put God at the center of their life, that if they will make Jesus the center of their heart and the center of their home, they will live a blessed life, a blessed life, a blessed life on earth, and more importantly, a blessed life forever. Let's do this, and I, I don't want this, uh, and I want Germantown to participate as well. I don't want this to be corny, but I want to read all of these verses together. Can we do that out loud? Okay, ready? Let's read it. One, two, three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. A couple more verses. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And that's an important part of this in the last verse. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me tell you a little bit about what you just read here, and I hope you're, you're going to have to take a lot of notes today, by the way. Uh, we're going to kind of exegete these verses here, but one of the things you need to know about the Beatitudes, this blessing from God, the 
the Latin phrase, beati, watch this, is that the beatitudes are not telling us how to become a Christian. What the Beatitudes are teaching us is what true Christianity should look like. You hear a lot of people say, maybe, and this is a very churchy kind of response, but when someone asks you or when you ask someone, how are you doing, people will say, well, I'm blessed. Uh, the Beatitudes teach us that when we live in the blessings of God, we don't even have to say that we're blessed. We just walk in that perpetual blessing. Right? So these Beatitudes that you just read, eight of them, they're not telling you how to become a Christian. They're teaching you what true Christianity should look like. And I'm going to be really transparent here. Over the last couple of weeks in preparation of today, I have felt a lot of conviction in my own life. As I look at these Beatitudes and I compare them to how I live my life, there are some of these that I'm, I've got some blind spots. There are some of these that I'm, I'm missing the mark. There are some, and I want you to write this word down because this is what we'll do for the next 25 minutes or so. We're going to take a self-assessment, a spiritual assessment of our life, our walk with Christ, our relationship with God, and compare that to the teachings of Jesus. And are we really living this blessed life? Now, let me talk about a hobby that most of us are unfamiliar with in terms of it becoming something that we do repeatedly or something that we enjoy doing leisurely but some of you are familiar, and it would be known as bird watching, all right, bird watching, more for formally known as bird spotting. But for everybody, online audience, Germantown as well, uh, let's do this illustration together. So I want you to pretend in your mind's eye that you've got a pair of binoculars. You got your binoculars, all right. Now imagine you walk outside, you're sitting on your, your back porch area, maybe you've got a little swing, you got a cup of coffee, come on, where are my coffee drinkers at? Right, you got your little cup of coffee, uh, Cafe Bustello, come on, that's another plug right there. So you're drinking your coffee. The, the sun is now eclipsing the horizon. The dew is settling on the ground. There's a cool breeze. I'm trying to take the stress away of your life. Can I get a witness from anybody, right? There's this cool breeze, and you've got your binoculars. You're going you're gonna to bird watch or bird spot. And all of a sudden, landing on a branch a couple feet away, you see an American gold finch. Now, my father-in-law, who's sitting on the front row here, online in Germantown, you can't, you can't see him because of the camera shot, but he loves birds, loves birds. Um, loves to watch birds, loves to feed birds. One time he shot me the birds. So he loves, <laughs> just seeing if you're listening, that's a joke. It's just a joke. He's never done that. He's probably wanted to, but he's never done it. Kimberly tells this incredible story of, well, I guess as a child, it wasn't incredible. It's probably very traumatic, but they had, they had a bird that, well, it died. And so my father-in-law decided to have a funeral for the bird, buried the bird, and there he led the family in the old hymn, I'll Fly Away. Come on, can I get away? <laughs> so if you know the song, you know that's funny. But imagine you see this American goldfinch, and you are awestruck by her design and her markings and her beauty. And then a few moments later, this is a, a, a really lucky day for you, landing on another branch nearby, you see this spotted sandpiper bird. Now, this is silly, and I get it, but think with me. How do you know the difference between these two birds? How do you know the difference between the American goldfinch and the spotted sandpiper? Uh, at our house, over the last couple of weeks and months, there has been... Uh, 
a number of cardinals that have landed on our fence. And every time we try to get a photo, it's just such a beautiful bird. How do you know the difference? And again, very elementary, very simple. But you can tell the different types of birds and the different breeds of birds by their design, by their markings. Listen to me. Think about this. By their spots. So whenever I read the Beatitudes and I think about these aren't necessarily behaviors on how to be a Christian, but they are the markings of true Christianity. They are the spots that really define a Christian. Then it makes me think, well, how do you spot a Christian? I think there's a couple of ways that you would say you spot a Christian. Some of you, if this was an open mic session, you would jump right up and you would say, well, you spot a Christian by their belief. And I think that's a part of it. I mean, obviously, if you're a Christian, you have a belief system, you have a faith, but the Bible says that even the demons believe. Some of you would say, well, you would spot a Christian by what they do. I'm just going to talk about me for a moment. I pray that you don't only know me as a Christian because I'm a pastor and that's what I do. There's a, a truth in some of that, that faith without works is dead. But the Bible also says that there will become a time. And you can read this later on in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that people will stand before me and I will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never even knew you. So how do you spot a Christian? How do you tell that someone is walking this faith walk, walking this spiritual life? And again, I think that these Beatitudes just unpack so much of the behaviors of a Christian, but more importantly, the blessings of those that come into alignment with the calling of God, the purposes of God, the grace of God, the mercies of God. And I know this is very teachy, but if this is okay so far, can I get an amen? Come on. Does that make sense? So let's, let's walk through these. And this is where you're going to need to take some notes. And we'll take a self-assessment. Let's start with the very first one here. Here's what verse number three said. Blessed are the, let's say, poor in spirit on three. One, two, three. Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some translations will simply say, blessed are the poor. And this can create a little bit of confusion for the reader because... Some might think that Jesus is talking about the individual that has no wealth or money or they're incredibly in debt or, you know, they, they, they live paycheck to paycheck. And, and while God does give us the responsibility to take care of the people that are in need, that's, that's so much of the New Testament church in the book of Acts, uh, the, the, the more accurate translation is poor in spirit. And poor in spirit has nothing to do with your financial capacity Poor in spirit has nothing to do with your income. Poor in spirit has nothing to do with your 401k or what your salary is or what kind of house you live in or car you drive. Hello? Poor in spirit is this humility, the moment that you recognize that you need God, that you can't depend on you, that you can't rely on your own power, on your own strength, on your own ability. Being poor in spirit is not about being broke. It's about being broken. Hello. It's about being broken to this understanding that I need to lean on God instead of leaning on myself. Now, I'm going to paraphrase this verse for you. And Lord knows my heart. I'm not trying to add to his word, but I want you to see this the way that I would read it. Blessed are those who humbly recognize their need for God. And when you do that, then you inherit or enter into his kingdom. So here's the assessment, and I hope you're going to write these down or take a picture, but ask yourself, 
Am I fully aware of my need for God in my life? As you're sitting here today at any of our campuses or you're watching online, depending on the time that you press play on the archive of this message, ask yourself, am I fully aware of my need for God in my life? One of the greatest disturbances that I see in the lives of people is their self-reliance, their desire to do things their own way and to be their own God and to rely on their own strengths and abilities and successes. But to be broken in spirit, poor in spirit, is the moment that you wake up and you realize that you need God and that God sent his son Jesus to redeem you and buy you back. And once you look at this assessment, now ask, and this, this question here is gonna be the same question for all eight of these Beatitudes. When you get the assessment here, now ask, am I fully aware of my need for God in my life? And then ask yourself, according to that, the answer to that question, am I far from God or am I close to God? Blessed are the poor in spirit for there is the kingdom of God. Here's verse number four, watch this. Blessed are those who what? Mourn for they will be comforted. Now let me unpack this for a second. Um, this particular verse here is not necessarily uh, a verse for those who are grieving uh, the loss of a loved one or the pain of a doctor's report or fill in the blank. Although, however, God gives us the Holy Spirit who is our comforter to comfort us in times of loss and need and tragedy and challenge. Does that make sense? But what Jesus is teaching in his first sermon here is that blessed are those who mourn, who have this deep sorrow, this deep grieving because they recognize the sin that is in their life. They recognize the, the sin, the very thing that is separating them from this intimate relationship with God. So now they are mourning over that sin and that mourning draws them to a place of confession and a place of repentance, which by the way, those are two incredibly powerful disciplines. The discipline of confession and the discipline of repentance. So I would paraphrase it this way. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins for they will receive forgiveness and eternal life. Is anybody thankful for that today? Come on. So here's the assessment. I'm not trying to be mean or hard, but are you aware of the sin in your life? Are you aware of the very thing that is separating you from God? And once you recognize that, is there deep sorrow? Is there, is there mourning and grieving over it? Is there conviction, not condemnation. Condemnation only comes from the enemy, but it's conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit that draws us to a place of mourning to recognize the sin that's in our life, to cry out to God and then experience His grace his mercy and his forgiveness. Are you aware of the sin that's in my life or your life? And are you sorrowful and repentant over it? And depending on how you answer that question, are you far from God or are you close to God? Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. All right, you got time for a few more? I hope so, because at both of our campuses, we've locked the doors, come on now. Watch this, verse number five. Blessed are the shout meek, Come on, shout it like you've got, like you're not timid. A little pun there. Ready? Shout meek. One, two, three. Me. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Write this down if you're taking notes. Meekness is not weakness. 
Oh, y'all better, you better say that. All right, I will. Uh, Numbers 12, verse 3, I believe. The Bible talks about Moses, the man that God tapped on the shoulder to lead the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And in Numbers 12, verse 3, it says that Moses was the meekest man on the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is gentleness and self-restraint and self-control and humility. So when Jesus is talking about blessed are the meek, what I believe Jesus would want us to hear today is blessed are those who submit to God because when you submit to God, you will inherit everything that he possesses. So he says you'll inherit the earth. I don't think he's talking about this earth. I think he's talking about the new earth. But everything that God possesses, you possess when you walk in meekness. That's not a spirit of fear or timidity. It's humility. And listen to me, you can't respond like you once responded. You can't behave how you used to behave. When you come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ, there is a change in you and through you. So do the assessment here. Whenever you're mistreated, and you will be, because we live amongst a broken humanity. We live amongst a bunch of sinners. Come on, somebody. Right? Whenever we're mistreated, how, how do you respond? Do you respond with that old attitude? That, that old, you know, well, if you say that to me, I'm going to say something that's even more hurtful. It was Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that talked about you need to turn the other cheek. So when you're mistreated or when you're treated unfairly, how do you respond? Do you respond with that old you or do you respond with this new you that now operates in gentleness and self-control and this God-given humility? Now, many of you know me, but most of you only know me from this relationship as serving as your pastor or a spiritual voice in your life. And it's the highest honor. But some of you know me off of this stage as well. You've, we've done life together. We've spent time together. You've taken me to play golf. And you're my favorite person. Come on now, right? Um, but then a, a few of you, like my mom watching online or some of my family on the front row, they've known me for a while and they've seen me grow and hopefully mature as a man and more importantly as a man of God and I'm telling you right now that if God can change the attitude of somebody like JC God can change the attitude of anybody of anybody I, now I still sometimes have to deny the flesh and overcome the temptation to just tell somebody look you just are being foolish right but I'm living in this season of my life where I'm walking in this meekness, a new humility, where I have become so broken in spirit that God, and I've got a lot of work to do. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm far from perfect. But God has done this internal work in my life and deposited this meekness and this gentleness and this self-control. And I think three things have happened in my life that have all contributed to this kind of new man. Obviously, my relationship with God, first and foremost. I am married to an absolute angel. Come on, if you love the first lady of the house, Kimberly. Like, she is just a gift. And then God gave me two kids, my son Lakeland, and then he gave me a little girl. And those kids have just, it's just, I've allowed those different opportunities to make me realize that I can't respond like I once did. 
I have to operate in some self-control. Now, I'm talking about me, but maybe that is talking to you. Here, here's the assessment. Uh, whenever I'm mistreated, do you respond with gentleness, self-control, and humility? Do I seek to be meek? I'm just giving you some thoughts to put on Twitter. Come on, somebody. That's all I'm doing up here. So question, after you answer this, am I far from God or am I close to God? Do you see this? Do you see how Jesus in his first sermon, he's unpacking all of these things on to live the blessed life is to live a God-centered, Christ-centered life. You, you can't be like the world and act like the world and think like the world and follow the patterns of this world. There is a transformation that has to happen and the profound teaching, teachings of Jesus over 2,000 years ago on the Sermon on the Mount are still profound to so many people today because it causes us to examine ourselves, to assess ourselves, and then make a necessary change where we necessarily need to be changed. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let me give you a couple more. I'm going to show you all of these. Blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for what? For they will be satisfied. Now, all of us, every single one of us, we know what it's like to be hungry and thirsty. Can I get a witness? Like some of you are like, if you would stop talking now, I could go get something to eat. We know what that's like. Um, how many of you, by a show of hands, uh, both campuses online too, if you're online, put the little, you know, uh, hand-lifted emoji. You've ever had like midnight cravings? Come on, like in the middle of the night, you got hungry, you got up, you're like, some of you are like, not only do I have midnight cravings, but I have 2 a.m. cravings, 6 a.m. cravings, 9 a.m. cravings, right? So we know what it's like to be hungry. Get up in the middle of the night, go to the refrigerator, Open the door. We just stand there, and you'll say things like, "I do. We got nothing to eat in this house," you know. And then we shut the door. There was nothing that was there. We couldn't find anything to satisfy us. Or, whenever you're hungry and thirsty, and you finally get to eat, or you finally get to drink, on a hot summer day in Georgia, as Alan Jackson would say, "Where I come from is cornbread and chicken." Come on, so, right? On a hot summer day in Georgia to get you a nice cold iced Coca-Cola, an RC Cola and a Moon Pie. My God, I'm writing country songs up here. You don't even realize it. <laughs> right, the refreshing of that, or to get some ice cream. Where are my ice cream people at? Get some ice cream. That you gotta eat it so fast, because it's gonna melt. Right, all of a sudden there's this, this satisfaction. So we know what it's like to be satisfied when we're physically hungry and thirsty, and then we also know what it's like to to not be satisfied physically when we can't find the things that we think that we want. Jesus didn't talk about physical hunger or physical thirst at all. What Jesus is talking about is this. He says, for those who have this burning passion, this burning passion for God. Now, in, in our context today, we, we have the Word of God. So let me ask you, do you have a burning passion for the Word of God, for worship? For time in prayer, to be in God's presence. Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. And I'm just talking from my own experiences, but maybe those midnight cravings that little Debbie can't satisfy is because it's not a little Debbie that your heart is really longing for. It's a deeper hunger and a deeper thirst. And God's going to wake you up at midnight or 2 a.m., because that's the only time that you'll be quiet and listen to his prompting. Y'all not going to help me today, and that's totally cool. Blessed are those who passionately what? Long for God. Do you long for God? Because if you do, he's going to satisfy your soul. So here's the assessment. Do I have a strong desire for the things of God? Do I have the strong desire for the things of God? And do I long to grow 
and intimacy and relationship with him. And according to how you answer that, now ask and answer, are you far from God? Or are you close to God? I always say this. It's kind of a, a, a little catchphrase or a little cute little sting. But it's amazing how many people spend time on Facebook, yet they refuse to get their face in God's book. I'm not trying to be critical. I've been on Facebook, and there ain't much there anyway. Come on, can I get a witness? Like, but we'll spend, as a matter of fact, let me just kind of tell you what I told my kids last night. I said, I think that there are certain parts in our family that I have led well, and there are certain parts in our family that I need to do a better job. And I told them, my son's 11, my daughter is 6, my wife will remain ageless. <laughs> Every lady said amen. Come on out. 21, forever 21. That's why you shop there all the time, right? We'll talk about that in a different sermon. But I told them last night, I said, you know, one area that I think I need to do a better job is modeling for you reading God's word. Now, I try every day to read the Bible. Kimberly and I, we get up early, usually before the kids get up, and we have our quiet time and our devotion time. But I got to thinking about this as I'm assessing all of this. I'm like, I don't know if my kids ever see me read the Bible. Now, I'm not trying to read it just so that they can see me and think, wow, oh, Father. Oh, my Father. The way you are the spiritual leader of this home. Thank God he has given me a father like you. I'm just reading my Father's Day card. Come on, somebody. It's just still fresh in my head. No, it's not for that. But, but they're going to model the behavior that they see. So last night I said, hey, I just want you to know that I'm going to start reading the Bible, and we're going to start reading it together. And I said, and it's really important that before you get up, and I know you're in the summer schedule. Come on, parents. How many of you know about your kids in the summer schedule? I said, I know you want to get up, and you want to go swimming, or you, you know, you, London loves to get on, on the iPad and watch the weirdest shows on, I, on the iPad. How many of you parents know those shows that I'm talking about? You got little elementary kids or pre-K kids. What? It's weird. These shows are weird. But she loves them. Lakeland wants to get on his Xbox. He just bought MLB The Show. And he made the worst mistake the other day. He said, Dad, can you come in and play me? <laughs> He's still crying. He's still, he has been broken down in his spirit, and he recognizes his need for God. <laughs> anyway, so I told them, I said, before you get into all of those things that you want to do, the first thing you do is you read your Bible. Read your Bible. I told a story about my father-in-law and how growing up in Trinidad, the rule of thumb in his home was, and this is what they called it, Bible before breakfast. And so in his home, it was a requirement that you read the Bible if you wanted to eat that you read the word of God, right, the manna of God before you ate, you know, whatever they ate in Trinidad as a child. And so I told my kids, I was like, so from here on out, until you read your Bible, you're going to fast. Like, that's just a new rule. Now, I didn't tell them that, but what was interesting is this morning when they walked into my office at church, both of them had their Bible, I'm going to cry, had their Bible in hand. And my London, six years old, she said, I read my Bible this morning, and tomorrow I'm going to read it with you. One conversation based off an assessment, do I long for, for God? Am I passionately pursuing God? I hope that makes sense. Are you spending time in prayer? When you answer this question, now ask and answer this one. According to your answer there, are you far from God, or are you close to God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for Twinkies and Doritos, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when you do that, God will satisfy your soul. I've been talking for about 25, 30, maybe 35 minutes. Can we pause and give Jesus some thanks? Come on, put our hands together. Both campuses online. This deep craving, this burning passion. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Listen to me. You reap what you sow. So if you want to reap a little mercy, you need to sow a little mercy. I don't have a whole lot of time to unpack so much of this conversation, but there is a difference between God's grace and God's mercy. Grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve. You and I don't deserve forgiveness, but thank God for grace. He offers forgiveness. Mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. You and I, we deserve death. But God's mercy withholds the sting of death because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting eternal life. That is the mercy of God. And if you want to be merciful, then you have to show and sow a little mercy along the way. I would paraphrase it this way. Blessed are those who show mercy through forgiveness and through kindness and through compassion because they will be the ones receiving mercy. Let me ask every married couple in the room, how are you doing on showing mercy to your spouse? Showing mercy to your husband or mercy to your wife? Come on, parents. How well are you doing at showing mercy to your children? It's easy to just whoosh, whoosh, crack the whip. Or if you grew up in a Hispanic home, you've been hit with la chancla too many times. You can't even, your head's spinning. But how well are you at showing mercy? Because if you want to receive mercy, you've got you to gotta sow a little mercy. Come on, business people. Uh, you've got employees and you manage teams. Uh, how do I say it? Well, I, I know how I'll say it. I'll say it this way. Is your team dreading seeing you in the office tomorrow? They now hate their job because you're in charge because you refuse to show mercy. And then you wonder why nobody ever gives you mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Does that make sense? So you reap what you sow. Blessed are those who show mercy through forgiveness, kindness, compassion. You'll receive mercy. Am I aware of my own need for mercy? Do you recognize that? Without the mercy of God, you will die in your sins and you will spend eternity, forever, separated from God. But God, Ephesians says, rich in mercy. Come on now. He offers it freely to me and you. And the moment that you are aware of your own need for mercy, now you can receive the mercy of God and you can extend mercy to other people. Does that make sense? Um, I hope it does. So, how you answer that, now ask the question and answer, am I far from God or am I close to God? Blessed are the, shout it again, merciful, merciful, for they will receive mercy. We're almost through all of the Beatitudes. Come on, you've done great today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The emphasis of pure in heart here is not about outward expression. It's about inward holiness. I'm trying to recall the scripture, Matthew 15, 
11, I believe, where Jesus says, it's not what goes into the mouth of a man that defiles him, but what comes out of his mouth. So when Jesus talks about being pure in heart, what Jesus is saying is there is an internal work. And this work is from the Holy Spirit that is purifying you and washing you and cleansing you. That's why for those that have been in church for a while, when we hear the phrase washed in the blood, we understand immediately. For those that are new to church or new to faith, that just means that the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross, the Bible says, will cover a multitude of sin. So all of the stain of sin can be washed in the blood of Jesus and we can be purified in our heart. Come on, church. Let me say it this way. Blessed are those who have been purified from the inside out for they will see God. You don't get purified from the outside in. You get purified from the inside out. So here's the assessment. Am I cleansed of my sin? Are you pure in your heart? And now, are you making wise decisions to keep your heart pure? It's not goes what in the mouth of a man that defiles him, but I would tell you this, that you gotta be careful with what movies you watch, what music you listen to. This feels a little like old school. This is like, this is Dover Pentecostal holiness sermon right here, right? You gotta be careful who you hang around with, because you will always act like who you run with. Come on. Are you making wise decisions to keep your heart pure? Some of you right now, as you take this assessment, you can recognize two, three, four, five, six, ten areas that you need to make better decisions. And listen, the emphasis on wise or wisdom is intentional. I'm not saying make the right choice. I'm saying make the wise choice. What is the, that's a prayer you can pray. God, what is the wise thing for me to do with this opportunity that I'm in, in, in front of? Am I making wise decisions to keep my heart pure? And then as you answer that, now ask and answer, according to this answer here, am I far from God or am I close to God? Okay, I gotta hurry, watch this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, the emphasis on peacemaker here is not necessarily about making peace with one another, although that is a responsibility of ours. You and I have a job for those who are in Christ Jesus to build peace bridges, not tear them down. Galatians 5.22 is the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So you have a part to play in being a peacemaker with other people, but the emphasis of peacemaker here is Jesus is saying, listen to me, as long as you are not in a relationship with God, you are at war with God. As long as you do your own thing your own way and you keep God at arm's length, you're not at peace with God, you are at war with God. But the moment that you understand that God sent us Jesus to make peace with mankind, that's good. That when we come into that agreement, now we are a peacemaker and what is experienced is reconciliation. Are right, you got another quick moment? Difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness can have only one party involved. I got things in my life that I've forgiven people over that they've not forgiven me over. Now I've got forgiveness, but they still have unresolved bitter, uh, bitter, uh, bitterness and resentment towards me. Bitterment is bitterness and resentment combined. I'm making up words and writing country music songs all at once. This is unbelievable. Reconciliation always have to have two parties involved. 
So both parties have to forgive before there's ever reconciliation. That's why moms, some of you don't have reconciliation with your daughter because both parties haven't forgiven. Dads, some of you don't have reconciliation with sons because both parties haven't forgiven. The thing with God is, is that God's already forgiven us. He's already forgiven us. Now we have to receive that forgiveness to come into reconciliation with him. That's what he's talking about with being a peacemaker. Blessed are those who have been reconciled to God, bring the same message of reconciliation to others. They will see God. Here's the assessment. Am I at peace with God? The only way you get at peace with God is through Jesus. You won't have peace with God through science. You won't get peace with God through Oprah. No offense to her. You won't get peace of God through politics. You won't find the peace of God uh, through medication, not against medication. The only way you find true peace with God is through Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying. Blessed are the peacemakers, because then you'll be in a relationship and you'll be called sons and daughters of God. So here's the question. Am I at peace with God through Jesus? And am I at peace with others? Now, how you answer that, are you far from God or close to God? Last one, and then I'll pray for you. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And of course, this verse continues with verse 11 and 12, but I've already got so much sandwiched on this stream. I'll give you verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If Jesus and his disciples were persecuted, you can take it to the bank that you will be too. Is it Matthew 10, 33 that says, Jesus says, those that deny me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven? Is it Romans 1, 16 where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So how I would paraphrase this is, blessed are those who are daring enough to openly live for Jesus. If you do that, you'll receive the kingdom of heaven. Are you sharing your testimony? I need to say this to you. Coming to church and sitting in an auditorium or watching online doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a driveway makes you an SUV. But God, if he has saved you, delivered you, set you free. You've confessed your sins and repented of your old life. Woo! You've received mercy and peace with God. You come into this relationship and now you are audacious and bold to live out loud your faith, not to keep it hidden. Come on. He talks about that, that you're the salt and light of the world. Then why would you take your light and hundred under a stand. No, you would let your light shine. We'll unpack all of that over the next nine weeks. And he's saying, you're going to be persecuted, but I dare you. I dare you to be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus. If you do that, even knowing ahead of time that, that when I speak up for the things of God, that's what we need more in this world. That's what we need more of in our country. It's people that aren't afraid to tell the truth, the truth in love, because the truth will set people free. Come on and give Jesus some praise. Come on that I'm not ashamed. I'll give you this one final thought here. The Holy Spirit, man, when I was working on this message, the Holy Spirit asked my heart and said, do you only share because you're a pastor? 
Or would you still share if I took all that away? I want you to know he's a Christian because of my markings, my spots, not because of what I do. And every single one of you, online, Germantown, in this room, listen to me. If you are alive, you are called to the ministry. Whether you work in the medical field, in the educational field, you work in uh, nonprofit world or in corporate USA, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm, I'm just a mechanic. Wrong. God has put you in that auto shop, come on now, to be the light of the world. God, God has put you on the back of that garbage truck so that in every neighborhood you can go, you can show the love of Jesus. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We're all called into the ministry and we all have a responsibility to share the testimony of what God has done in us and through us and to tell other people that if God can love me, God can love you. Come on and let's give Jesus one more praise. Come on, all right. Am I far from God or am I close to God? All right, so here's the closing questions. I'm gonna give you two today. So you just did a, 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 an eight question assessment. What'd you discover? Some of you discovered you should have brought a pen so you can take notes next time. It's a lot, right? But what did you discover about your relationship with God? What did you discover about proximity with God? How far you are from God or how close you are to God? And then the second question is this, and your campus pastors, as they come in just a moment, they'll lay out for you some practical next steps. But what is your next, next step, your best next step so that you can get closer to him? Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that I said exactly what you would want me to say today and that this word would speak to the hearts of your people, that you would stir in us a desire to live a blessed life, to make you Jesus the center of it all. And for those in this room online in Germantown that have yet to make you Jesus in this moment, I urge you, I implore you to say yes to Christ, inviting him into your heart, asking him to forgive you of your sins, confessing that, repenting, and letting him change your life. It will be the best decision you have ever made. For those that are in a relationship with Jesus, God, draw them closer and nearer to you, God. And we give you thanks for it. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said amen and amen. Come on, let's give God one more praise. Can we do that together, church?